Our Old Testament lesson this morning is found in 1 Kings, reading from chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, we recognize that it is your gift and that in it lies life. And so we ask, Lord, this morning that you will speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. It is good to be back with you. Last week, we began a new series in the book of First Kings. Over these weeks, we'll be tracing the life of King Solomon, tracing his rise and fall. And it is here that we encounter Solomon, perhaps the wisest and most successful king in the history of the world. And it's here that we read history, history about the third king of Israel. But we also see that we're reading more than just history. That is more than a chronological record of events. Because what we have here helpfully, Jewish compilers of the Old Testament scriptures designated not simply history, but they designated the book of First and Second Kings prophecy. That is that they understood that in the revelation of these books, in the history of the kings of Israel, that God was instructing his church, that he was showing them through history. He was teaching them about himself that he was teaching them about his works and that he's teaching us about ourselves and the sinful capacities of the human heart. And so we find here a rich treasury, not simply of events then and there, but God addressing us here and now, speaking to us about life in the church. Now, as a pastor over the past 20, 20 years, One of the things that I've been most uh, intrigued by is the number of Christians I've spoken with who are quite nervous about Christianity and about the Christian God. These are people who populate the pews, who sing praise and listen to the Bible and take him very seriously, but not on the outside, but still within them, when they're really honest, they're nervous about something with God. And what they're really nervous about is they're going to miss something of the fine print. That is that there's something that they're not getting about the Bible that's going to come back to haunt them and that God is not really going to love them. After all, doesn't the fine print happen all the time in life? Last week, Sim and I were traveling to our final college visits and for our trip, we purchased plane tickets on the internet-based travel agency Expedia. We found a remarkable deal. It was several hundred less than any other vendor. And so we quickly bought the tickets and saved money, delighted in being able to do so. 
Then we got to the airport and went to check in and we're fumbling through phones and we're notified that we needed to pay for our luggage. But I thought we had been clever because we packed light and had only carry-ons. But it was then that I received the notice that in the fine print, it wasn't just that you had to pay for things that you checked. You also had to pay for your carry-on. And so I asked the price of the carry-on fee, and it was actually more than the check bag fee. And suddenly all of these wonderful savings that we had accrued were evaporated. It was all gone. The ticket ended up being more expensive than the ones we could have purchased where bags were included. And it was all down there in the fine print. And this is what people fear. There's going to be something in the Bible that they just miss, that they don't get, that the way God relates to us is really not what we've heard, and that there's something that he's going to pull on us, some technicality that's going to do us in. This week, we learn about God's relating to us, though. We see it in David's final instructions to his son Solomon as Solomon takes the throne of Israel. And this is what David says to Solomon. He speaks to him about walking in the ways of God's covenant. He speaks to him as a father to a son. We'll see this in Proverbs chapter 4, where Solomon records what his father has taught him, what his father taught him, that it's a generational affair. And David was instructing Solomon to keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. And in these words, what we find is that God reveals exactly how he relates to us, that there is no fine print awaiting you. There's not some mystery out there, something that's going to surprise you. It's all here for you and for me to know and to embrace. And so the question this morning is really quite simple. How do you and how do we walk in this covenant relationship that's revealed here? Two things that we'll highlight. First, we cling to God's promise. Now, verse 3 uses a lot of words that remind us of a law book that we are to keep the charge of the Lord, that we're to walk in his ways, that we're to keep his statute, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, and is written in the law of Moses. When we read those words, it's quite easy to misunderstand them because we can often have the perception that the law of Moses is an elaborate law book, things that we're supposed to do, and that as we do them, we acquire frequent flyer points that we can then charge against our account of our sins and we can gain favor with God. This is how we often approach something like the law of Moses. But it's important that this really misunderstands something about God's dealing with Old Testament Israel and also God's dealing with us, that it's all in the concept of a covenant. And if you were to look for this concept of covenant and the reference for all of these terms, statutes, testimonies, rules, and commandments, these all flow from the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, as you read Kings in one hand, it's very helpful to have the book of Deuteronomy open on the other. And the book of Deuteronomy reveals that God's way of relating to us in the law of Moses is not a legalistic way. But the book of Deuteronomy actually begins with three chapters detailing what God has done for his people. 
that God has brought them out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace of Egypt, where they were melting and they were being abused, and he has delivered them, and then he brings them through the wilderness, protecting them and providing for them. It's a historical recounting of all of God's grace in Israel's life. And then when we reach chapter 5, it is summed up with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And friends, this is the promise that the law of God, the covenant of God, begins and it ends in the grace of God. And the book of Deuteronomy records that covenant of God's gracious ways with his people in which he brought them out of Egypt and made them his own and declared that Israel was his sons and his daughters, that they were his people, his royal possession, his chosen and precious object. This is captured, of course, for us very succinctly in those Ten Commandments. And those commandments do begin with that emphatic statement of what God has done for us. That God is our God, that he has delivered us. And if we're going to understand and really appreciate what David says here to Solomon, we have to know that it begins there. That it begins in the grace of God. And that what it means to cling to God's testimonies, what it means to keep his ways and his statutes, that that begins in clinging to those promises. That God has made us his own through grace and forgiveness. And in the further light of revelation, as the story unfolds, we know that that grace and forgiveness is ours in Jesus. And so do you want to know what it is at the beginning, what it means to walk in God's ways? It is to believe and trust his promises. It's to have all our distrust displaced because we see behind it all and behind God's covenant relationship with us is his love and his mercy and his forgiveness and his compassion. That he initiates with you. That he makes you his own. This is the beginning of a covenant partnership with God. And we cling to that promise. And this is what David is instructing Solomon to do. Cling to these promises, son. But second, we see that we also follow God's precepts. Now this order is critical though. Cling to the promises and then following God's precepts. Because it is when we get this backwards that biblical religion and Christianity becomes quite boring and quite laborious. Our obedience to God's precepts follows our receipt of God's gracious promise. This is what it looks like, that there is grace and then there is gratitude that follows. And when we reverse that, it destroys everything. Because what this does, when we keep grace prior and grace initiating with us, that God's the one who brings us into relationship with himself, and then he asks for a corresponding response of gratitude. But what we see then is that the commandments, the precept that God gives us, are not that list of rules in which we're to try to earn God's favor. And it has been the unfortunate habit of the church both in its mainline liberal expressions and also in its conservative fundamentalist expressions, to walk into this error 
There were some who believed that it was just too messy to talk about Jesus' death and sacrifice. And so what we want to focus on is the bringing of the kingdom, which happens through following Jesus' teachings. And so by being really good, we bring the kingdom, and this was the focus. And it ended up in a moralistic gospel that only focused on human deeds and not on the deeds and the acts of God. And then on the conservative side, there was a focus on behaviors. An elaborate list were composed about what you could do and what you couldn't do as a Christian. And all the focus went there. And in all that focus driving to what you can do and what you shouldn't be doing, Jesus was lost. And the act of God to make us his own through the death and resurrection of Jesus was just simply washed out. But friends, once we get that order correct... We see the relationship between God's promise in which he makes us his own and then God's commandment because God does give us precepts. And when David tells Solomon that he's to walk in the way of the Lord, that he is to keep his statutes, that he's to keep his commandments, that he's to keep his rules and his testimonies, he is also saying that we are to follow God's wise counsel in all the commandments that he gives us that God does gives us, give us these commandments and he doesn't do it in order to just simply test us and see if we'll just follow him and love him enough. But that God from his love actually gives you everything that we find in the Ten Commandments. That those are gracious commandments. That they're designed to assign boundaries for us. And it is in those boundaries that we can find flourishing. And so in those commandments, we need not to see some menacing design but rather we see the good and the gracious hand of God and to freely submit to those. Now, this type of law is very different than human laws. You'll recognize that because the laws that exist in Jacksonville and in the state of Florida, Florida and in the United States of America, they're very different. All those laws ask us to do is to externally conform to the standard that is presented to us. For instance, on Floor Branch Boulevard, driving near my home, the speed limit is posted at 35 miles an hour. I think it's absolutely ridiculous on a two-lane country road that it is 35 miles an hour. Without any effort, you can find yourself exceeding that speed limit, and the sheriff is very fond of posting himself on Floor Branch Boulevard. But... What the sheriff asks of me is not whether my attitude is good about that 35-mile-an-hour sign. In fact, he doesn't care. He's not concerned with my opinion. He's not concerned with my grumbling. He's concerned with how fast I'm driving. And as long as I stay in and around that limit, he's good with me. Okay? That is the way human law works. Biblical law is very different. Because you see, God was never concerned with just external conformity. He was always concerned with what Calvin calls an inward and a spiritual righteousness. That is that the law was designed to address the human heart, which was an idolatrous factory. And the law was designed in order to prick the heart and begin to expose what it is we love. And this is where it's helpful for us to remember that Solomon is also the author of the book of Proverbs. 
It's in the book of Proverbs that Solomon collects the wisdom of the wise, drawing from several different cultures and also from his own native Israelite land. And he's recording for us the instruction of a father to a son, the generational passing of biblical wisdom. In the first nine chapters, there are 10 different speeches, lectures, you could say. In chapter four, we find the seventh lecture. And listen to these words. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. And so already we have the idea of the human heart being presented to us. Then this is elaborated on in verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And friends, this is the true work of the law of God, addressing the human heart. Because everything about the human heart that in the human heart flows everything, that from it. And what the law does is address what we really love. The German reformer Martin Luther once pointed out that we never break any of the other commandments until we have first broken the first commandment. That we only break the other commandments when we've loved something more than we love God. And friends, what's critical for us is to be discerning and to be wise. As we know, we've been adopted by God's grace, as we've been made his own people, that now he's walking us out of Egypt, he's taking us through the wilderness. We want to be addressed by him, to receive those boundaries, knowing that they're good and they're pleasant and they're right and that they're for us and for our flourishing and allow all of those good boundaries to diagnose our hearts, to work within us, to receive that and know that it comes from a loving hand. Now, as a young minister, I sat down with a, a young man at Second Presbyterian Church. He had been on the outskirts of the community. He was one of those people who had been assigned to my congregational unit. And so I was following up with him, but just because I hadn't seen him at church, hadn't seen him in Sunday school, and I wanted to get to know him because he was to be under my care. So we spent the time together at lunch, and I just asked, I said, well, I know that it seems to have been hard for you to make it to church lately. I was trying to come very softly. And he said, yeah, I can't because of what happens on Saturday night. I was like, all right, well, we're in it now. I said, well, what's happening on Saturday night? And he says, well, you know, I have to go to pretty, um, pretty late in the evening parties. I said, well, why do you feel compelled that you have to do that on Saturday night and not be prepared for church on Sunday morning? He said, well, you know, I mean, I believe in Jesus and all. I take that stuff really seriously, but I'm young in my career. And on Saturday night, I have to make the social networks. And I said, well, why do you have to make the social networks? He says, well, Chuck, what you've got to understand is that we're living in high society East Memphis. And what's really important in this high society East Memphis is your social connections. And if I'm going to get ahead in life, because I'm from southern Mississippi, I don't come from a dime. And if I'm going to do anything in life, I have to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I have to make every penny count. I have to make every moment in my week count. And yes, so I want to love God. 
but I've really got to use my time wisely. And that doesn't leave me time for church. It doesn't leave me time for fellowship. And it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for obedience. It was blunt, frank, bold. And what was clear, my friend Ben, what he was dealing with is that Ben was dealing with something that he loved more than he loved God. He'd grown up in the church, had actually incredible knowledge of Reformed doctrine. He could spit it up and down. He could tell you all about the Westminster Confession of Faith. And yet this baptismal stand was more converted than he was. Why was that? Simply reflected that what he loved in his heart, he loved the idea of a place in society. He loved the idea of making a name. He loved the idea of the story of coming up from very humble beginnings and becoming someone prominent. And he loved all the trappings that were around it. And as we'll see in the book of First Kings, he was like Solomon. That Solomon loved God. But then in chapter 11, we learned that he loved many other things that compromised him. And friends, this is what the law of God does. It's a gracious boundary that diagnoses those areas of our lives. When we faithfully sit under it and when we listen to it, it diagnoses those areas of our lives where we have other loves. And God graciously brings us back to him. And he gives us the boundaries and he gives us the guidance that we need. So receive those precepts. This is part of the covenant. It's receiving God's gracious promises and believing them, trusting them, and receiving his gracious commands and his precepts as a good word. Now this is the shape of what it means to relate to God. These are just how covenants work in the Old Testament world, that God initiates and makes us his own and then gives us precepts to follow. It is the shape of grace and gratitude. But there's also one aspect of this passage that's particularly difficult that we just need to deal with and we'll deal with in a final point here because it leaves unaddressed one aspect of God's ways with us. Specifically, what does God do when we, when you and I, are unresponsive to him. If you'll follow with me in verse 4, we see in David's words, he mentions the word if, and it brings up the subject of conditions. Follow with me closely. That you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So if they pay really close attention to their way, David, you will not lack a son on the throne of Israel. And many people feel like, oh, there it is. Here's the fine print. Here's the part we've been waiting for. You know, that you talk about all this grace and love and mercy, and now here it is, that God's really not like that. 
But this is where we need the entire book of Kings, and we also need the entirety of Scripture to understand what's being said here. Because what does it mean for us? Is the promise conditional? There are really two important things for us to reflect on. First, when we look across the book of Kings, disobedience leads to God's fatherly discipline. It's not the end of the promise to David. That what discipline, that what disobedience results in is God's fatherly hand of correction. And that fatherly hand, it builds in momentum, and it ultimately leads by the end of the book of 2 Kings to exile. But in 2 Samuel, this is the promise to David, and listen to it clearly. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. And friends, this is God's promise to you. That those who he has initiated with and that gracious promise and that he holds to and those who cling to him and hold fast to those promises that are ours in Jesus, that Jesus would be the one who cancels out our sins, that Jesus is the one who brings the new heavens and earth. For all those who look to Jesus in this way, that he would be a gracious father who also loves us enough to discipline us to guide us back into the way, especially when our loves get disordered and everything gets turned around. And so this is God's way with these kings, as we'll trace it all throughout this book, uh, throughout these two books, that God very patiently disciplines and guides his people. Now, the second important thing to affirm here, though, is that God also doesn't swerve from his promise. It's interesting the way these books come together because when you arrive in chapter 11, you may be helped by turning there. Solomon has loved his women and has begun to worship at the shrines of false gods and he's in all kinds of a mess. And then after that disobedience, his son Rehoboam is going to come to the throne and Rehoboam's a foolish man and so the kingdom is going to be divided due to his foolishness. But despite all of this folly, look what is said in verse 36. Yet to his son, referring to Rehoboam, I will give one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. And so despite everything, God is saying there that David is going to have a lamp in Jerusalem. Despite all the folly, despite all the weakness, despite all the failure, despite all the unfaithfulness, God is going to fulfill his plan. The same thing is said in chapter 15 and verse 4. And then actually this all builds to the climax at the end of 2 Kings. If you were to look there in chapter 25, it's verses 27 through 30. The Israelite monarchy actually goes into exile. The monarch, the king, Jehoiakim. He has sent to Babylon. And so many people would ask, well, was God faithful? Did God actually abandon his people? But what is very clearly said in those verses is that there was a Davidic king. He just happened to be in Babylon. 
And it's an indication, it's a torch in the dark of hope that actually God was going to keep his word, that God is determined, that God is steadfast, that God is patient. And yes, he disciplines his people and he does so with a loving hand so that there would be repentance and a turn. And friends, this is God's way because you see, he didn't forsake that promise to David, did he? No, in a rather interesting and intriguing and unexpected way, these promises were fulfilled to a humble man named Joseph and to a humble maiden named Mary, and born to them was Jesus, the son of David, a Jew, a Jew of Jews, born to Jewish parents, born in the line of David. And people ask, well, why? Because this is the way God promised to work in the world. And he was bringing his plans to full fruition. Those plans that were operational in Israel, he now brings to full blossom for the sake of all the nations. It was God's way of working with Israel and it's God's way of working with us. That he's faithful and doesn't swerve from his promises. And so friends, listen to David. Moms and dads out there, listen to the example. Teach and instruct your children. Pass this down generationally. Cling to God's promises. Listen to God's precepts. Receive God's discipline. And know that God is determined, that God is patient, and that God fulfills every one of his promises. This is what it means to be in a covenant partnership with God. Let's trust him and walk with him in this way. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to you. Our hearts are open. They are known to you. You search them. We confess that you are our God, that you have made us your own people. So it's not by our choosing or by our morality, by our determination, but solely by yours, that we are your treasured possession because you have singled us out and you've granted us love and forgiveness in Jesus that our sins have been trampled down and we have been declared righteous in your sight. And God, so we ask that you free us because of your grace and mercy from these lesser loves that can captivate us. Diagnose those things in our heart. Write your law there. May we be careful to discern what flows forth, what we really love. Center our loves upon you. Captivate us with all that you are for us in Jesus. Direct us.